please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Reading today comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father God, we do indeed thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. On the second Sunday of Easter, where we continue to walk in the realization that your Son has raised and risen and walks among us now, God. And we realize that you have not left us alone, but has given us your Spirit as a comforter and healer, Lord. And so may we learn today how we, through your Spirit, may serve your church, your bride, uh, the one from which you came and sought, Lord. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to find those among us to elect as leaders, God, and may we all learn to walk in humility towards one another to serve you. It's in your sins and we pray. Amen. I'm excited about this season that we are entering into as a congregation. This focus upon shepherd leadership this morning looking at 1 Peter 5, which we just read together, and then in the weeks to come, looking at a man that the Lord chose, the man of David, coursing through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, looking specifically at him as a shepherd leader. It should be, I believe, a great encouragement. Uh, to look into the providence and promises of God surrounding the ministry of David in the days to come, and I do believe, will give us ample opportunity to discuss what leadership looks like within the body of Christ, but even more so, what leadership and service look like in the culture at large, something that needs encouragement. And it is my prayer that the Lord would use this glimpse into David's life as a part of that very work. Well, as I was uh, thinking about this passage this week, First Peter chapter 5, I uh, couldn't uh, help but remember a very key place in Peter's life that, load, that sort of led me to reflect on several other key stories that always seem to choke me up when I read them in the Scriptures. Beautiful stories where you see the Lord's grace come together in a person's life and bring about redemption in really remarkable, even very powerful ways. Some of you are reading with us the, the scriptures through over the next couple of years and maybe you've gotten through that section at the end of, of the book of Genesis with the life of Joseph. It's one of the passages that almost always brings me to tears. Genesis 42 to 45, when Joseph is welcoming his brothers 
uh, from the land that is under famine to Egypt to the storehouses of food that they so desperately need. And they come to see Joseph, whom they've sold into slavery, whom his father believes is, is as good as dead. And Joseph sees his brothers and then ultimately his father as they come for help to Egypt and he is so eager to want to reveal himself to them and he goes through a series of tests with regards to, to their commitment and their character and at the end of those, Joseph finally reveals himself and in what is one of the most emotional Text in all of the book of Genesis, we see Joseph weeping with his brothers and with his father. The son that he believes has been gone forever has now been restored. It's an amazing passage of scripture. Another favorite story of mine is the story of Ruth. I would argue maybe the most beautiful short story that the Bible offers to us. Certainly the most glorious love story that the Bible offers to us here. Naomi and Ruth together in a desperate situation, coming out of Bethlehem, no less, going back to the land that Naomi is from, where it seems like there is no hope, it seems like there is no future. Two women without husbands, without a means of making their way in the world, and lo and behold, Mr. Darcy shows up. Boaz himself shows up and he becomes the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. And at the very end, as he becomes her husband, we learn that they are expecting a child and his name is going to be Obed and Obed is going to be the father of Jesse and Jesse is going to be the father of David. And lo and behold, we see the redemption narrative of the gospel playing out before our very eyes in what looked to be the most devastating circumstance that someone could be in. That's one of the stories that I can hardly get to the end of where I'm not seeing tears well up in my own eyes. Well, one of them has to do with Peter. There's Joseph and there's Ruth, but let me tell you, the end of the Gospel of John almost always brings me to tears because it's there where Peter, after having had Passover with the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus had said to Peter, listen, when they strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to scatter. Quoting from the prophet Zechariah and Peter, knowing that he's referencing the disciples, say, no, I mean, I know these, these other fools around me might do that, but I would never, never betray you. I would never deny you. And Jesus says, little do you know at this particular moment, Peter, but before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times by tomorrow morning. And still, Peter, in his foolishness, denies that that's going to be the case until, of course, we see it play out in the pages of the end of the book of John. What you may remember is that on the very final chapter of the book of John, Peter decides to go back to his day job. There's not much going on. Jesus has died at this point. He's been resurrected, but there's not been the vivid appearances that he has yet experienced of Christ. And so he takes along Nathaniel and Thomas, and they go into the Sea of Galilee to catch fish. And they fish all night, and you remember the story, right? They don't catch a thing. And then Jesus, who they can't tell is Jesus, on the shoreline, cries out to them and says, Hey, are the fish biting? 
And they go, no, we haven't caught a thing. And he says, why don't you try throwing your net on the other side? And you know how the unfolding of the story happens. They haul in more fish than they can even bring into the boat. And at that moment, Peter knows it's the Lord Jesus. And he does a very, very Peter-like thing. He jumps from the boat into the water and swims immediately to the shoreline to eat breakfast with Jesus. It's going to be a remarkable thing to eat breakfast with the resurrected Jesus as they cook up some of the fish that Jesus has just helped them, help them catch. It's really a remarkable story, and it's there where Jesus begins to ask Peter a couple of questions. He says to him, Peter, do you love me? It's a poignant moment. You know that Peter is just filled with the denials. His soul is wrecked with guilt and with shame. He is burdened deeply, and now his Lord, who is resurrected, is eating breakfast with him post that resurrection, and he's asking him, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then how does Jesus respond? He says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything there is to know. I love you. Feed my sheep. Now, the very same Peter who heard those three words from Jesus is the Peter who says, shepherd the flock of God. The very same Peter. The, the one who denied the Lord Jesus Christ as he was making his way to the crucifixion with not even the hope of resurrection on his mind is the same Peter in 1 Peter who writes the word to elders, fellow shepherds, and says, shepherd the flock of God. Now, can you imagine one who knows what it's like to have been a wandering sheep, one who denied the Lord and completely left him in his time of need, is now becoming the one who exhorts the congregation of the dispersion, the elect exiles that he describes in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He is now the one challenging the people of God to be shepherded by the elders who have been entrusted to those congregations of whom he speaks. It's a remarkable redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's because of this reversal of the denial of Jesus, one who, or the, the denial of Peter, one who was a wandering sheep that became a grand shepherd whom the Lord used to plant many churches throughout the book of Acts. He and Paul combined. You can't hardly turn a page in the book of Acts where you can't see these men planting churches, preaching the gospel, and guess what they're doing? Raising up elders and leaders, spiritual shepherds, who are going to guide the people of God into a day that Peter and Paul will not see. In fact, it was such a critical work for both Peter and Paul that they never left a church until they appointed elders, until they had shepherds. Shepherds was the mark that they could begin to move on to another territory, to another place that had not heard the gospel, because now they knew that this particular flock was going to be well taken care of. It was that critical 
to Peter and to Paul that they wouldn't move on in the spreading of the gospel to dying souls around them until shepherds were raised up within the body of Christ. Now, this image of shepherding and even the image of feeding my sheep that Jesus speaks to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John is not some sweet or cute metaphor that Jesus just thought, hey, what do I need to use to get Peter back on track here? That's not what's going on. Jesus is pulling from the lead shepherds of the people of God from the Old Testament the predominant image of servant leadership in the Old Testament, bringing it to bear in the ears of Peter at the end of the Gospel of John that Peter will then bring to the ears of Asia Minor as he writes this letter in 1 Peter chapter 5. What do I mean? Well, let me just pinpoint two of the leading leaders in the Old Testament and you'll see exactly what I mean. Let's take Moses, for example. It's Moses who's on the mountainside when he sees a burning bush, a bush that's not consumed by the fire that burns, and he approaches it, and we learn that it's the very presence of God. And it's in that moment that God himself calls Moses, who is doing what? Shepherding sheep on a hillside called Mount Horeb for Jethro. He calls him from shepherding sheep into shepherding the people of Israel in that moment. He says, listen, what you have learned to do here on the mountainside of Horeb, I now want to do with my people coming out of Egypt. I want you to be their shepherd leader. I want you to go back. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He's not going to listen to you. I'm going to bring a bunch of plagues that are going to ultimately weaken the grip of Pharaoh on my people. And as I bring my people out, you're going to be like a shepherd who's leading them through the wilderness. And isn't that exactly what we see Moses do right up to the cusp of the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy? The greatest then known prophet leader of the people of Israel, Moses, began his career watching a bunch of fluffy sheep on a hillside in Mount Horeb. But not just Moses, right? You know all too well, we're going to look at it next week in 1 Samuel 16, it was King David. As Samuel has been called by God to go to Jesse's sons and to anoint the next king of Israel, not Saul, who was the people's choice. Now we're looking for the man of God's own choosing. And he sends Samuel to go to Jesse and he says, listen, one of your sons, God has appointed to be the next king of, of Israel. And of course, Jesse knows exactly what a king is supposed to look like. So he puts his oldest, strongest, wisest, what he feels like, best appearing men who will be the next king, largely the candidates, the best candidates for the work of kingship in Israel forward. And we're told that Samuel... It's told by God, listen, I don't look on outward appearance, I look on the heart. As I look at all of these men, systematically he says, these are not the ones that I've been called. Samuel asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? He said, well, there's this one, but he's the youngest. And really, you know what? We just have him keeping sheep. Why don't you go ahead and bring him here? And as he brings David into the group of sons were told this ruddy, complexioned young man is exactly the one whom the Lord has appointed and will now anoint through Samuel to be the greatest king of Israel's history, King David. The one who will lead them into the golden age of their history. 
And he started his career as a shepherd boy. This image of shepherd, of feed my sheep, from Old Testament to New Testament, finds its ultimate culmination, doesn't it, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who throughout his ministry looks out at the crowds as he does in Mark chapter 9, and you know what he says? I see these people, they're harried, they're weak, they're like people who are sheep without a shepherd. He said, I've come to be, John chapter 10, the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, in making that declaration, was tying himself to the ministry of David, to the ministry of Moses, and ultimately what we find is he, as the greatest shepherd, the chief shepherd over all of his people throughout history, is the one who fulfills the image of the calling that's described here in 1 Peter chapter 5 as the shepherd leader. Now, I spend time noting these things for you to show you how big this is. When he says, shepherd the flock of God, it's not a small thing. It's not a, it's not a small thing. It's a significant thing that weaves its way through the Old to New Testament with a fulfillment in Christ. And I think it's very noteworthy for us to just pause and say, that's really different than the images we probably would have chose for leadership with regards to the church. Really different. When you think of leadership, the first thing that pops in your mind is a, is a person with a staff, and a long robe, and the Middle East during the first century as an image for a leader of a people, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the ages to come? <laughs> is that what the image that comes to mind? It's not, is it? And yet it's the image that the Lord gives us. It's the one in which he's called us unto. We would have likely chosen a business, image, wouldn't we? We could read much easier Choose some really great CEOs for the church of God. Some people who know how to manage things. Some, some, some guys who have MBAs by their name. Those would be guys who we would think, that's who the Lord is going to call into shepherd his sheep. And we don't see any indication of that. No pinstripe suit, no carry a briefcase. That's not the picture that's given here with regards to leadership. He doesn't pull an image from, from athletics. Paul uses athletics as a picture for the Christian life. Run the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus, right? The author and the perfecter of your faith. It's a picture for the Christian life. He doesn't use that same picture directly related to leadership with regards to athletics. He piggybacks on the phrase shepherding instead. So it's not a man in tennis shoes and Adidas shirt with a whistle around his neck and a ball cap on. That's not the picture that's given here. And and, and interestingly, and Presbyterians are are very tempted by this, he he does not pull from the world of academics. He doesn't say we need a few good professors in the church. If we could just get a dean within our midst, that's who we really need to operate in the office of leadership. No, I have a Master of Divinity degree, silliest name for a degree. No one is ever a master of divinity. It's the silliest thing in the world. You may be mastered by divinity, but you're never a master of divinity. 
And I'm very thankful for that training, but let me be very honest with you. A master's degree does not qualify anybody to be a shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't care how many PhDs that somebody has by their name. How many smart people are poor shepherds? It's just the reality of things. This image of shepherding is multidimensional in the nature in which the way the Lord is using it. And that's part of the reason he's using it. Because when you begin to think about a shepherd, it's why we're tempted, I think, by all of these other particular models of leadership. When you think about a shepherd, he's someone who has to have vision. And he's going to have to have some administrative ability. He's someone who's going to have to learn at a macro level to lead a group. That sounds a little bit like a man who might be running an organization, like a businessman. A shepherd's also going to have to train. He's going to have under-shepherds under him. He's going to have to learn how to disciple and model. That sounds a lot like a coach. A shepherd is also going to be one who's going to need to impart knowledge, someone who's going to be able to teach, which sounds a lot like a teacher or a sphere of academics. Well, what's interesting about all of those varying spheres of leadership is if you look at just one of them isolated from the other, you'll find that there's significant weakness in actually shepherding the flock of God if they're in isolation from one another. But a shepherd is one who's had to learn to do all of those things. He really is a skilled generalist rather than a specific specialist. He's one who has to move from both the bedside at a hospital room when someone is passing away to a finance committee meeting to thinking about moving into a neighborhood that doesn't know the gospel, to the consideration of imparting knowledge in a Sunday school class. He has to be able to do the roving work of what a shepherd is due to care for the multitude of needs, both at a micro level individually and at a macro level, collectively, of the dynamics of the people of God. This shepherd leader picture gives us a vision for what it is what we really mean when we hear that word shepherd leader. And what I hope that you could hear is that no one could do it. No one can do it. That's why Jesus had to fulfill it. That's why he had to accomplish it. But praise be to his name. Through his accomplishing, he has promised the spirit of which carries his authority to call men into the work of shepherding the flock of God. And he has promised to use those men, not primarily because of their gifts, but because of the character of how it is that he forms those men and uses them for the blessing of the body of Christ. That's why Peter really focuses upon character in this particular passage. And so I want to take just a minute to look with you at 1 Peter chapter 5 because you've given up that I was going to ever turn to the text. 1 Peter chapter 5, really important. This is a huge, huge text. And I want to just simply look at it with you under a couple of questions briefly. I want to look at what does it mean to be a shepherd leader I want to look at what are the tasks of a shepherd leader and then primarily want to look at the heart of a shepherd leader. Okay, what does it mean? What are the tasks? What is the heart? I want to do the first two briefly and spend a little bit longer as we conclude on the final. What does it mean to be a shepherd leader? Well, I think we can summarize it in two words that are given us there in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What does that mean, Peter? Exercising oversight exercising oversight. That's what he means. He uses the language in this context, 1 Peter 5, shepherd leader of exercising oversight. Now what he's appealing to there 
is there are men who be qualified for the work of exercising oversight over the flock of God, which means they occupy a position of ministerial care for the body of Christ. It's a position that has authority, authority that's given to them by God, but it's a role that's not intended for themselves as shepherds. It's intended for the good of the sheep, as we'll see in a minute with regards to the character of this office. Now, when we think of anybody having authority, in our culture specifically, that's a bad word. It's a bad word. Though we all, every single day, live under authority in every single sphere within which we live. Just break the speed limit, for instance. Just decide not to pay your taxes before April 15. And you tell me if there's leadership. (laughs) There is authority that is there. Whether we like it or not is another matter entirely. But the fact that it's there is a part of what's ingrained into the very nature and the fabric of creation itself. If you're a husband, you're called the head of your household. The Bible doesn't say become the head as if it's something you aspire to. It says, you are the head. It's what you are by virtue of marriage. When you made that step, you became that position. As parents, with children, you are the leadership in that household with regards to children by virtue of having children. Now, you could be bad at it, and you could be good at it, and you're probably a mix of both. But the fact of the matter is you're not, you're not seeking authority. You are in the position of authority by virtue of the way that God has actually ordered the world. The realization is authority and power are not evil inherently within themselves, though they are fraught with incredible burdens of sin and brokenness. Power is actually given by God as a gift to us to be leveraged for the good of the world. Let me just use a very basic example from the standpoint if you have food and someone else does not have food, then you have power to be able to give them food and something that they don't have power in themselves to be able to achieve. Now that's not evil to exercise the power of food in blessing another, but you genuinely have the ability to give or not give. That's an exercise of authority. It's the exercise of power in some way, shape, or form. The question is, how is that power going to be used? Is it going to be used redemptively? Well, here, as the Lord begins to grant to elders not inherent authority, but delegated authority, derived authority, authority that comes from Him, not authority that's within themselves, They weren't born into it. They were were delegated this authority by the chief good shepherd through the affirmation of the church to be able to exercise oversight within the body of Christ. We learn this very clearly from the mouth of Pontius Pilate. Uh, When he is speaking to Jesus and he says to Jesus, listen, Jesus, I have authority to condemn you or release you, which is a little ironic, is it not? Pontius Pilate teaching Jesus a little bit about authority and how things are organized, but nevertheless... Jesus says, well, well, I want to be just real frank with you since we're talking about authority. You would not have any authority unless it was granted to you by my Father in heaven. Jesus was not saying your authority is not, doesn't, doesn't work here. He's saying your authority is gifted to you. And it can be taken away from you. 
It's delegated, it's steward, it's derived, and it's derived from God himself. Now, to say it's delegated and derived does not mean it's not real. It's real. It's a real authority. He says, Jesus, to his disciples, that he's given the keys of the kingdom. Speaking to Peter and the disciples, that what they bind and what they loose actually has effect upon eternal realities. Whatever it is, he means in all the dimensions of that language. He's clearly saying there is authority that has been granted within the body of Christ. And it's a shepherding authority that's meant to care and tend and bless. And elders are to give themselves in service to the flock. So this is what it means to be a shepherd leader. It's one who operates in the authority of the Lord, in the delegated authority that's been given by the chief shepherd and affirmed by the church for the purpose of blessing God's people for the advance of the kingdom. That's his goal. Now, what are the tasks of the shepherd leader? Well, I'm not going to spend long on this because we're going to have time in the future to talk about it, but I want to articulate four tasks of the shepherd leader And I'm deriving these from a book entitled Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. It's a book that we actually use in our training for elders and for deacons here at Cornerstone, a marvelous book that speaks specifically of these particular roles. And he really identifies four. And the reason I want to talk to you about these four is I want you as a congregation to say, what should I expect from shepherd leaders? What should I expect from shepherd leaders? What is the Lord calling the shepherd leaders of this congregation to do for the tending and the care of this flock. And we're going to articulate four. First of all, shepherd leaders have to know the sheep. They have to know the sheep. Now, first of all, that means in a macro way, you've got to have a sense for how big your flock is. Who's actually in the flock and who's not in the flock. You've got to have a sense of knowing the sheep. But in addition to that knowledge is you need to know personally the members within the flock. You need to begin to know their stories, begin to know their needs, how to pray for them how to serve them. You've got to begin to get into each other's lives. So there's a macro dimension and there's a micro dimension to that knowledge. Secondly, you have to feed the sheep. You have to feed the sheep. This is the primary work that Jesus is referring to, to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. He's saying, feed my sheep. This is the preaching of the Word of God. This is the teaching of the Word of God. This is discipling the flock, giving guidance and direction. Thirdly, you have to lead the sheep. You have to lead the sheep. The shepherd is one who's called to get out in front of the flock. He's one, as we'll talk about later, who doesn't herd from behind like a cowboy. But he's one who leads from the front and calls to the sheep that they would follow because they hear his voice, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 10. We know the sheep, we feed the sheep, we lead the sheep. Fourthly, we protect the sheep. We protect the sheep. We're told throughout the gospel messages, or throughout the gospel message, that there are wolves that are seeking to get into the church. These are false teachers. These are those who are divisive within the body of Christ. These are those who are coming in with malevolent intentions. It could be through slander. It could be through gossip. It could be through a lot of arenas where discipline and where rebuke and where challenge needs to be given. And it's a part of the calling of the elder to protect the purity and the peace of the congregation. Now, we'll spend a little bit more on these as we go through our series, and we'll write a little bit on this to continue to clarify what is the work of the shepherd leader. But I want to go into what actually Peter focuses on the most in our closing moments, and that is with what heart does the shepherd leader do his work? With what heart does the shepherd leader do his work? And here's what you see as is described here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want to do this into three words, willingly, 
eagerly, and exemplary. Those are the three words that are used here to describe the work of the shepherd leader. Look first at willingly. He says it in verse 2, that you are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, notice, not under compulsion, but willingly. Now let me tell you, there's nothing worse than an elder or a shepherd who is coerced in the work, who's forced in some way to enter into the work or under false assumptions entered the work and thought it was something different than he expected. Um, there is an example here or an instruction that's given here in the scripture that says this ought to have a willing spirit for the elder who is entering into this work, a sincere desire to serve the flock of God, having fallen in deeply in love with Christ, now seeing the needs of the body of Christ, believing they are called by Christ, affirmed by the nomination and the training and examination process of the church, then enters into the work, not having their arms twisted behind their back, but willingly saying, I want to lay down my life for the sheep because I love the church and I love Christ who is the head of the church. That's the spirit of what you want in a shepherd leader. I can assure you that those who come in coerced into the work of shepherd leader ultimately lose interest in the work. Because those motivations on the front end were different than they ought to be. There wasn't a willingness of spirit. But I want you to see, secondly, they need to enter in eagerly. And notice the contrast that he gives there in verse 2. Eagerly, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. Now, anything, if there's anything worse than a coerced shepherd leader, then it's one who has themselves in view coming into the role of leadership within the body of Christ. In our particular cultural context and really throughout human history, if you look at authority or positions or status, a lot of those look at those particular areas of position as places in which we can get a badge of honor, places in which we can gain recognition, places in which we can get a platform to get our ideas or our notions passed so that we can push through what it is that we desire rather than really caring for the flock of God. Clearly, Peter says this. You know why Peter says this? Because he's dealing with it. Even in the early church, and he knows the context in which is being ministered. He sees people being coerced. He sees people entering in for shameful gain. And he says, this ought not to be the spirit of the elder. In fact, that's the spirit of what we see was true of many of the Old Testament prophets and servants in the Old Testament. They were anything but servants. Just read Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the prophet says to us that the shepherds in Israel were not shepherds because they were feeding themselves, not the sheep. The sheep were malnourished while the shepherds went fat and sleek and comfortable. While the sheep went distracted into destruction while the shepherds only looked out for themselves. And in Ezekiel 34, the word of judgment that's coming down from the Lord is not pretty for those who utilize God's kingdom for their own recognition rather than stepping into the church for the purposes of making much of Christ in the midst of the flock of God. This word eagerness means this is a person who is sitting on go that has a spirit that says, I'm not worried about what's in it for me. That's the leader of the shepherd leader. They're sitting on go, they're eager, and they don't have a spirit of saying what's in it for me. They said, I'm willing to pay any personal cost of what it means to lay down my life for the sheep. But thirdly and finally, 
exemplary. A shepherd leader is exemplary. And notice the contrast in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering over those in your charge. It's easy to find tyrants. It's easy to find those who will, who will rule with an iron fist, who are on a power trip, who see people as an opportunity to put them under their thumb. It's easy to find that kind of character. It's everywhere. Just watch the news. It's everywhere. The recognition here is that you want to see someone in servant leadership who is exemplary with regards to their life. And we don't just see it here in 1 Peter 5. Look at what we see in Hebrews 13. This is what is read in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And then notice what he says. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He says, you want servant leaders whom you begin to watch and you see the outcome of the way of their life and you think to yourself, how can I begin to pattern my life after their love for Christ, after their servant leadership, after it is that they're sacrificing for their families, for the community? I want to see my character and my life fashioned after a person like that that I might imitate their faith. So if you begin to bind up all of this instruction, you begin to see why Peter closes with this language of humility. If you think willingly, eagerly, and in an exemplary manner, it makes sense why Peter says in verse 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. Close yourself, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It makes total sense. You've heard the phrase. Humility is not thinking of yourself First, but it's putting others ahead of yourself. Or that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, I don't know about you, but that's hard to do. Like, really difficult. Like last night when my daughter walked into our room at 2 a.m. to tell us she was about to throw up. I really liked my pillow that I was laying on. There's nothing in me that wanted to get up and help and serve at that particular moment. But the calling in that moment was a very particular calling that the Lord knew was the right time and was the right calling to be able to say yes, to say this is what servant leadership looks like. It means cleaning up the bathroom after that explosion. You know exactly what I mean. Servant leadership is not wearing a badge. It is not being sure that other people praise you. It's about noticing behind the scenes doing the work that God puts on your plate and doing it willingly, doing it eagerly, doing it by example. It's doing it in a manner that's humble. You're clothed with humility, counting other people's interests more important than yourselves. Now, let me tell you, it's not merely in that moment going, okay, I'll get up out of bed and I'll help clean up. It's, it's deeper than that. If you really want to see humility begin to take over your life, you're going to have to stare into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was the humble good shepherd. Because let me tell you, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the likeness of men in the form of servants. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on 
the cross. You see, Christ is the ultimate servant leader who fulfills every single need of the sheep. This is what makes shepherding so wonderful. The shepherd leader who has been called by a congregation, elder or deacon, to serve within her midst, the recognition is that shepherd leader has nothing more than he or he can do than to point to the good shepherd who's already done it all. That's what he does. That's what he does. He constantly makes Christ known. He makes the fullness of the shepherd leader beautiful and believable before the mind's eyes of God's people in a hard word, in a word of comfort, in a training session, in a Sunday school class, in a vision casting meeting that thinks about the future of the way in which the Lord's kingdom might advance through Middle Tennessee. In every single sphere, he doesn't put the church on his back and heave it into the future. He knows that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He knows that he is the head of the church. He knows that he's already fulfilled all the needs of the flock of God. And now as his under-shepherd, in the lightness of his yoke and burden, we go with the power of the Spirit and the joy of the Lord. And we serve until we breathe our last and we usher into the greatest victory known, the victory that has come in Christ. You see, when we begin to think about shepherd leadership, we begin to think about the glory that is to come. That's why here in this text, we're told that those who serve will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of Christ. It's not a glory that we've earned. It's the glory that Christ has earned for us. And when we do walk across that finish line, run across that finish line, limp across that finish line, crawl across that finish line, however it is we wind up getting across that finish line, we'll know that it was Christ through His Spirit who carried us the whole way. And when we're given the unfading crown of glory, we'll know it's not a crown that we earned, it's a crown that He earned for us. It's His kindness and His grace that calls us into servant leadership. You see, Christ doesn't need you in the church. You need the church. And Christ, by his fulfillment in the completion of the work that the kingdom of God has come in him, now joyfully calls you into the service of the church and is pleased to use you as one of his instruments in his hand. When we think about the season that is to come and we think about the change that the Lord might bring, I pray that one of the things that sits on the top of your heart is, Lord, bring into our midst shepherd leaders, leaders like this, leaders that look like Christ because they've been beholding the humble, crucified Savior, leaders that look like Christ who now look out across the flock of God and say, he gave his blood for them, I'll give my blood for them as well. That's the kind of leader we need. One who, like David, faced bears and lions when he was caring for that little flock for Jesse, and one who would face the spears of Saul when he enter into the service of the kingship of what it is he's called to. That's what it means to lead the flock of God. And to do it with confidence that the good shepherd has already laid his life down for the sheep. We go in service with a victory cry in our hearts, knowing that a greater victory cry is coming still in the future. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, we ask you to raise up servant leaders within our midst.
Today specifically, Lord, talking about elders and deacons within this body of Christ, these shepherd leaders, but Lord, in every sphere imaginable in this room right now, somebody is caring for somebody else and is called to shepherd and care for them. And so, Lord, I pray in every sphere that the Spirit of Christ would take over the leadership of the hearts and the lives of this congregation and that the aroma of Jesus will permeate every aspect of who we are. We ask this in Jesus' name.